Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you wouldn't mind to find that in your copy of Scripture. I did something uh, this past week in my study that I don't typically do. In fact, I'll never forget uh, one, of the, one of the church members here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church mentioned something to me. Not long after I came here to Wilkesboro Baptist, he said something like this. He said, I hope one day the Lord will just change your sermon on you. And what he was talking about is you remember the day and age when a pastor would maybe have a sermon plan, like I do. I mean, I preach through a passage of Scripture or a study. And he just felt a special sense that when a pastor changed his sermon under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it was just a move of God. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think God can move, work in those types of ways, just like He works in plans. Uh, and so I've typically planned my sermon series out, several months in advance, really. I kind of know what I'm going to do in the summer, and I think I know what we're going to preach through in the fall as well. But as I got to study in this text, I had originally decided to preach chapter 3, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 5, because they're interconnected thoughts. You know this, if you've paid any attention to church history and canon history, the, te- the chapter and verses of Scripture were added later to help us make sure that we were able to find what was in the pages of Scripture. So when Paul wrote it, he certainly didn't write it with chapter and verse headings. And so the content works together. But as I got to studying it, one of the things I realized is those Verses, those eight or nine verses together are so rich in content that there's no way I could preach a sermon from all of those verses and do so in a timely manner. And to top it all off, it really fits for both of those sermons to come in unique ways before Easter. So what we're going to look at today is verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. And I've entitled it, The Church as a Pillar of Truth. Uh, Because what Paul says is that we as a church are the foundation and the butress of truth. In other words, we are to be the displays of the very truth of the gospel to a lost and to a dying world. And by the way, truth is at a premium. If you paid any attention this week to what happened at the Oscars, had an actor walk up on stage and slap another actor defending his wife and And the reality is, if you've paid any attention to the news and to media and things over the years, if any of you paid any attention to that, you might have been kind of like me and wondered, was that just acting? Was that just an act of hypocrisy? Was it it real? Was it meaningful? Because what do these folks do? They get on a stage or they get in front of a camera and they act. By the way, that's where we get our word hypocrisy from. It's the same word for actor. And I say that to say that we live in a world where truth is at a premium. We could ask the questions of news media and broadcast and and information that we get when we read online or when we read from a newspaper. Is this true? Is it absolute? Is it meaningful? And the reality is we live in a world where... For many people, the only place where hard truth or real truth is found is in things like science or mathematics or rationalism. And the challenge with all of those things is we know that there are things that extend beyond that that are true. Your love for a spouse or for a child or for a family member. But you can't define that or quantify that in a scientific or mathematical equation. 
And so part of where we live in the craziness of our world is that you folks can have your truth and I can have my truth and don't step on my personal truth because you have personal truth. And, and, and that's where we get some of the crazy ideas of things like, well, I'm not going to go that, you know where I'm going with that, but I'm not going to go in all those details. The challenges of self-identity and who we say we are and who we think we are and who we'd like to be. The problem is biblical Christianity offers us something that is both absolute and yet incredibly meaningful. In biblical Christianity, we don't have personal truth. We have a person who is truth. The glory of what we are taught in Scripture is that truth is propositional, meaning that it is affirmed, is rational, it makes sense. God said, I sent my son Jesus to be your Savior and Redeemer, and he came to die on a cross. That is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago, near to the events of them occurring. It is as meaningful and as absolute today as it has ever been. But the glorious thing about biblical Christianity is the truth that we're going to preach and teach and the truth that's found in Scripture is not merely disconnected from our lives, but is intrinsically connected to your person and a personal relationship relationship that you can have with the living Jesus. What our culture wants to tell you is you need to find truth from within. What the Bible tells you is there is a truth who can come live inside you, but you're not going to discover it from within you. You're going to discover it from outside of you in the pages of Scripture. And, and believe me, if we as Christians aren't willing to proclaim and teach and tell that truth, that truth is not going to be heard by the masses of people from media and from all the other platforms that are telling what we think or what they think ought to be and ought to be right. So we're going to look at the church as a pillar of truth. We're going to look at two truths that we find in these three verses and unpack them for how we can relate to them. Uh, let's read verse 14. Paul wrote, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and butress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's a providential hand at work in verse 14. Because uh, if you read that, sometimes we get, get to those kind of commentary verses in Scripture. And we, we get to that and we say, we kind of throw it away. We're not going to deal with it a lot. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing to these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave. Kind of think about that. Oh, okay, great. Paul's just telling Timothy what, what he needs to know. I think this is beautiful, though, in God's providence, because imagine if Paul made it to Ephesus to tell Timothy how to structure the church. That would have been really good for Timothy but really bad for the generations of Christians that have lived for the last 2,000 years. I wonder if Paul was providentially hindered so that he would write 1 Timothy, so that Timothy would have a record of how the church should be structured, so that 2,000 years later we can open up a glorious pastoral epistle like this and understand what it means for the church to hold on to sound doctrine and have a biblical structure. In fact, this paragraph follows how Paul has said this is how the church ought to behave in the household of God. 
What's he talking about? How, how the leadership ought to be, what their character ought to be earlier in chapter 3, what the worship services ought to look like in chapter 2. Paul's saying, hey, I've talked about the worship services, and I've talked about the leadership in the church, the offices of elder and, and deacon, and now let's talk about how the church ought to behave. Who are we as a church? And what are the truths that tell us what we need to know? Well, the first truth is this, in the gospel which is the good news of Jesus Christ, how we're brought into the family of God. In the gospel, we discover the truth about who we are. This relates to our conduct. The truth about who we are. Well, who are we? Notice what he says in verse 15, how one ought to behave in the household of God. The word household is oikos in the Greek language. It can mean house or it can mean family or household, like a family unit. I think in this context, Paul is meaning it in the sense of a family unit, household. Because he has already used that in reference to the responsibility of the pastor or the elder to make sure he manages his own household well. He's used that very same phrase, that very same term, talking about the deacon, making sure he manages his own household well. So in context, what does it mean? It means that we as a church are the family of God. We're the household of God. Do you get that? You and I are family. This means a couple of things. First, it means that we belong to God. Okay? We belong to God. You don't belong to me and I don't belong to you primarily. You don't belong to a family member primarily. You don't belong to a denomination, an affiliation, a desire, a team that you like. That's not who we belong to. You don't belong to your job. You belong to God. And why do you belong to God? Because Paul said in Acts chapter 20, speaking to some of these same leaders that he's writing to, the Ephesian elders and the Ephesian church leaders, you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, we belong to God. A second truth that this means is because we are a part of a family, folks, we need each other. Do you realize that? You need me and I need you. We are intrinsically connected We are bound together, not not by our affiliation, not by you and I saying, okay, I want to be a Baptist this week, or I want to go to the early service this week, or I want to go to the middle service, or I want to go to this Sunday school class. No, we're not bound by our preferences and desires, although they're not irrelevant, but we're not bound by that. We're bound by the blood of Jesus Christ. Folks, if you have been redeemed by Jesus, forgiven and saved, then you and I are connected in a way that is deeper than your biological relationships with spouse, with children, with grandchildren, with family, with moms and dads. We're bound together. We need one another. We need one another to be present together. Paul, Paul, if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, somebody wrote the book of Hebrews that's in the Bible. It said this, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Folks, why, why do we need one another? We need to be together as a body of believers. So let me speak to you as a pastor for a second. As many of you will know, this is a live worship service. I'm glad that you're here. But it's also the service now that we're recording that's going to stream online. And for those of us that are watching at home, uh, you just need to know that we're here and we would like to have you come back. I know there are folks that have been providentially hindered from gathering with us over the last couple of years. I know some folks talked with some of them just recently that because of health concerns, they have been kind of isolated and not come back to the gathered body of believers. And I completely understand that. We are come to grips as a church staff and as deacon leadership with the reality that some of those that were isolated as singles and as widows and as widowers have become shut-ins during the pandemic. 
In other words, they are no longer as able to get out and around the body of believers as others. And so those of you that cannot get out, I'm not talking to you. But there are folks in the life of our church that have gathered back in all sort of other capacities, doing all sort of other things, and have not gathered back in the body of believers. And I want to tell you something. We are a family. When you're not here, we miss you. I miss you. When, when you're not here, you miss out on something that is tremendously important. Let me connect it here. Let me speak to you as your pastor for just a second. There is no one else in your life that can inconvenience you quite like your family. I, I mean, right? My children can inconvenience me. When they're awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't matter whether I want to be awake or not. I'm awake. Amen? Or maybe you want to say all me. I know some of you that are taking care of older parents or have taken care of older parents. I know some folks in our congregation, it is a part-time job, sometimes a full-time job, to manage the health care of a spouse, of a parent, of a grandparent, to make sure they get to their hospital visits or doctor visits on time, to make sure that they get back home. And you know what? Some of you do that with absolute grace and compassion, without complaint, because you just own it as your responsibility. Maybe it's a vow you made as a husband or wife. Maybe it's just a recognition that as a son or a daughter, there's no one else to take care of that aging parent, and you're just going to take care of them because it is the right thing for you to do. And, and yeah, yeah, if you're honest, there are times it frustrates you. There are times that it inconveniences you, but you don't shirk or neglect that duty because you love that person. Let me just tell you something, folks. The church is your family. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been connected through the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus alone. And sometimes, being a part of a church family means that we're inconvenienced for one another. Sometimes being a part of a church family means that we say, what's best for us as a body? Not what's best for me as a person. What's best for us as a body? What's, what, what, and I'm going to tell you something, folks. We need you and you need us. We need to be here. We need to be connected to one another. pastor friend of mine just recently put it this way. If you're a Christian, your calendar should show it. Being a follower of Christ shouldn't be the last thing you do or the first thing that goes away. Church attendance should be the first thing that goes away when your calendar fills up. No, if we've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been connected through the blood of Jesus. We are a part of God's family. We belong together. I'll stop meddling. I'll come back to that as a point in a moment, application point. Let me tell you something else that this means, that we discover the truth about who we are. Who are we? Well, we're, we're a household. We're a family. Secondly, we're the church of the living God. Church, we're the called out ones, the ecclesia. It means we've been called out of the world. We no longer belong to all of those organizations or theologies or denominations or other worship. We no longer belong to those things. We belong to Jesus. And in particular, I think Paul had in mind 
for some of the folks at Ephesus, you no longer belong to the cult of Artemis. You've been called out from that paganism. You've been called out from that sinfulness. And you've been called out to belong to the living God, which is a a favorite Old Testament phrase for God. It essentially means the God who is alive, the God who lives, the only true God. The reality is we're the, we are, this is why the church is so important, folks. Because we're the only group of people that really belongs together in a relationship that will last forever. Muslim affiliations, Allah is not really God. Hindu affiliations, all the thousands or sometimes, depending on which configuration you look at, millions of Hindu gods, they're not really gods. Buddhism, going down the line, all the different worldviews. How about sports affiliations? How about job affiliations? All of those things have an end date to them. We may connect to them for a period of time, but there's coming a time when it will no longer matter. How about biological relationships? Sure, you'll know who your spouse was in heaven, I think. And you'll know who your children were by the, by the connection of, of, of our relationships on earth. But what will matter in heaven is not that you were so-and-so's mom, but that now you're so-and-so's sister because you have an eternal relationship. Here's what, it, what Paul's saying. Folks, we're the church of the living God, and we ought to act like it because our relationship with God and relationship with one another is the only relationship that will span eternity. Because God alone is alive. He is the only true God. And the way that we ought to behave as followers of Jesus should be reflective of the relationship that God has given us with himself and with one another. We're the church of the living God. How about this one? We are the pillar and the butress of the truth. This is a very interesting pictorial analogy that would have not been lost on the church at Ephesus. See, the the temple of Artemis was known as one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 pillars that held up this giant, massive roof over the temple of Artemis. Those pillars were 18 meters high, and many of them had been donated by kings or politicians as ways to ingratiate themselves in that particular deity. And so some of those pillars had come wrapped in gold. Some of those pillars had come studded in jewelry. Some of those pillars had been, had been designed in such a way that they wanted to show off the opulence of the giver of that particular gift. And so in the temple of Artemis, when you walked up, it, it staggered the mind to be able to see all of the wealth that had been poured into a pillar or 127 pillars to hold up the roof of that particular temple that was worshipped. Here's what Paul says. We, the church, are the pillar and the butress of the truth. He doesn't say that we're the ones who dictate truth. But neither does he say in this text that the church is grounded on the truth. Now, the church is grounded on the truth of the gospel. That's without question. But that's not Paul's particular point in this text. He's not saying we get to decide on the truth either. He's saying that we are the foundation, meaning that we are the body of believers that have been saved by the truth of the gospel. We've been redeemed and made alive. So if we go away, the church, the body of believers, then the truth, the truth of the gospel, has nothing to stand on other than us as the people of God. It's kind of like this. 
God's plan A for reaching all the people in the world with the gospel is the church. Here's the glorious thing about God's grace. He entrusted the only thing that will save people all over the world to a bunch of self-centered, imperfect people like you and me. But that's who we are. We're the foundation of the truth, but not just the foundation, the pillar. What does that mean? It means that we're to hold up the truth, the truth of the gospel. Folks, we're not really a church if we're not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not really a church if we're not displaying the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. If we say it's just about what we do here in this room, it's only about what makes me feel comfortable and what I like, and we neglect the mission, we neglect spreading the good news, we have missed the whole point of what God did to redeem us. He didn't redeem us just for ourselves. He redeemed us to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and the nations. Our mission at Wilkesboro Baptist Church is to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus by worshiping, learning, serving, and replicating. And folks, if we're not a part of spreading that gospel, not only through the sermons that we preach and the songs that we sing and the community Easter services that I hope you invite as many people that if they're not going to a church, you invite them to come and gather with us. They're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, those events ought to be events where the gospel is shared, but we also ought to share the gospel through our mission partnerships, through things like the Afghan resettlement ministry, where, where I don't know who the family is that God's going to send to us, but the likelihood is that they're Christians is not very high because of where they come from in the world. we got an opportunity to share the gospel with people that God has sent our way. Can, can you imagine if it costs us a little bit and we partner with a family and bring them in, but guess what? They go to heaven and not to hell forever because somebody in our church had, was faithful to minister the gospel? Listen, it's a beautiful thing that God has invited us to be the display and the declaration of His gospel so that people would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Folks, we are the church of Jesus Christ who has an opportunity to display the truth of the gospel. That's who we are. I'll give you a second truth. In the gospel, we not only discover the truth about who we are, yeah, we're the household of faith. Yes, we're the church of the living God. Yes, we are the declaration of the gospel in our role and responsibility. But guess what? We also discover who we are to believe. So what is this gospel that we're to believe? Paul gives it to us in a creedal format. Probably an early hymn. Probably sung by the early church. And if Paul's writing this, say in the early AD 60s, Within 30 years or so of the events of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, then this hymn is a very early tradition of acknowledging who it is that we're to believe. You see, you don't just get into the church by saying, I want to be a member. You don't just get into the church by walking down a church aisle. You get into the church by believing the very truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who is it that we're to believe? Paul gives us this in a beautiful statement. Great indeed, he says we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I want you to hear this, not the mystery of goodness. Mystery of godliness. God's expectation for us, folks, is not that we are good. God's expectation for us is not that we are good enough. God's expectation is that we are godly. Some folks in our community, some folks in a, in a Bible Belt aspect of Christianity have a sense of religion. 
but it's not real saving religion. Because it's only being a little bit better than their neighbor, or only being a little bit better than their family member, or only being a little bit better than someone else that they can compare themselves to. Know what Paul says, great indeed is the mystery of the of godliness, meaning holiness, meaning a very depiction of God's expectation for people. Folks, you cannot work your way into heaven. You can't be good enough. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and talk about some of the barriers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you right up front, one of the ways that you can be evangelistic and fulfill the expectation for you as a church member, as a follower of Jesus who displays the gospel, invite someone to listen. Invite someone to watch. Invite someone to join us for worship next week because they're going to hear some of the reasons why people don't commit to following Jesus Christ. And one of those reasons in this text is that we try to be good enough to get to heaven rather than experience the grace of God that will only bring us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Great indeed is the mystery or the unveiling of godliness. What is the unveiling of godliness? There are Three couplets here that describe what godliness looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice this. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. I wish I could take credit for this particular configuration, but I cannot. Brian Chapel and R. Kent Hughes in their commentary on 1 Timothy kind of divided these three or acknowledged how these Six statements are divided into two uh, or three couplets, three specific couplets that reflect a specific part of Jesus' ministry. The first couplet is, concerns the revelation of Christ. Notice this. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. Manif- manifested. It's incarnation and resurrection. Manifestation. Here, here, here's what we need to remember. Jesus did not begin when he was born. Jesus did not begin when he was uh, conceived. Manifest is the idea that God put himself in human flesh and showed up in the world in human flesh, but not that he began when he showed up in the world in human flesh. This is an affirmation of Jesus' deity, the incarnation, vindicated by the Spirit, what is that? He was raised, by, raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's incarnation and resurrection. This concerns the revelation of Christ. Folks, who is Jesus? He is God's incarnate Son living in human flesh who died on a cruel Roman cross to be raised from the dead to give us life. Who is Jesus? That's who we're to believe in. The Jesus who was revealed in the incarnation and the resurrection. Not only that, look at the second couplet seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. This couplet concerns the witnesses of Christ. In other words, those who watched what Jesus did. This is beautiful, by the way. My wife and I were talking last night. Our family and I were actually talking about this. We were talking about angels and what role angels played in the world. And we got into the philosophy, the philosophical, theological conversations about when angels had free will and and I don't have all the answers there. Maybe we'll get to that on our theology. We will get to that at some point on a theology series on Wednesday night. But here's one thing I want you to note about angels. They were ever present in Jesus' life and ministry. The angels announced that he would be born, Gabriel, to Mary. An angel showed up even to John, right? About John the Baptist's birth. Angels announced Jesus' birth there in that glorious Christmas event where they spoke and sang to the shepherds. 
angels were present throughout Jesus' ministry. They were present ministering to Jesus after his uh, time of, uh, of temptation. They, they ministered to Jesus on other occasions in his, in his, during his ministry. They were present at his resurrection. They were there at the stone when he was rolled away. Get this, the witnesses of Jesus are supernatural and natural. The angels saw Jesus' resurrection. This is important for Ephesus because Ephesus was a pagan culture that believed in all sort of authorities and principalities and powers. And one of the things that Paul's stating when he's affirming he was seen by angels is, folks, Jesus is victorious over God's angels, the angelic messengers that are a part of God's uh, ministry plan for the church and for His people. But he's also acknowledged that He is the supernatural King of kings over all authorities, over all powers, over all nations, over all things that reign and rule. Jesus was seen by angels. But not just seen by angels. Notice the next phrase. Proclaimed among the nations. Jesus is not just witnessed to by the supernatural uh, beings that are part of God's plan. He has been proclaimed throughout the nations. That's literally the people groups. When we pray for a people group each month at our church, that's the same word, ethnos, the idea that every people group in the world has an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is being proclaimed among the nations. Jesus is witnessed to in the supernatural realm and the natural realm, meaning that there's not a part of God's created order that does not have testimony to the fact that Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King. By the way, we're part of that fulfillment proclaimed among the nations. We were the nations all the way back in the book of Acts. We were the uttermost part of the world all the way back in the book of Acts. And God has fulfilled His glorious promise of bringing people of all nations to salvation by letting us hear the gospel. It's just a beautiful affirmation. Let me give you the third couplet. Believed on in the world and taken up in glory. This relates to the reception of Christ. That the people have received Him. Believed on in the world. For every one of you in this room that has believed on Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're an affirmation of the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and He's Lord of lords and King of kings. But not just in our human sphere. Taken up in glory. It's an affirmation that Jesus is received in heaven. Jesus is received as King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm chapter 2. You see that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, particularly chapter 5, where the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, displays Himself as glorious and worthy of receiving praise and majesty from all of creation. He was taken up in glory to establish that Jesus alone rules and reigns. This is a beautiful depiction of the fact that Jesus is to be received by all as Savior and Lord. Let me close with three very specific invitations. For those of you that are here, for those of you watching at home, three specific invitations. First two are to the Christians. Christian, be present in the family of God. I just want to tell you something. We miss you. We need you. Our church needs you. If you have not regathered, if you have not come back and you can, we're inviting you to come back. For those of you that are in the room, you've heard me talk about inviting folks back. If you know somebody that hasn't come back to join us regularly in worship, would you do me a favor? Would you tell them this week that we miss them? Would you ask them to join us back in the gathered body of believers? Would you do that? 
Maybe you want to ask him, say, hey, pastor was preaching a message, and he kind of was talking about those of us that haven't regathered. I'd like you to watch that this week and invite you to listen to it. Folks, we need one another. It is important that we know who each other are. Christian, be present among the people of God. I'll give you a second invitation to those of us that are Christians. Christian, be on mission with the gospel. God redeemed us and saved us and brought us out of sin and unrighteousness and wickedness so that we could be a display of the glory of the gospel. Every Sunday, we gather. We gather to praise and we gather to pray and we gather to worship and we gather to preach and we gather to honor and glorify God. And then every Sunday, we scatter. Some of you go to all different places. You go to jobs, you go to your neighborhoods, you go to family, you go to friends, you go to soccer games and baseball games and dance performances. You go, you scatter. And when you scatter, folks, we scatter with the message of the gospel. Would you take the message of the gospel where you go? Say, I I don't know what to do. Uh, Years ago, this dear sister named Sophie went to her pastor, A.B. Simpson, who was pastoring a church in New York City, she was a scrub woman. She didn't have much education. She went to her pastor and she said to her pastor, I think God wants me to be a missionary. Will you help me discover where it is that God might want to use me? A.B. Simpson looked at her. Her pastor looked at her and said, why don't you go pray about it for a week? Because he didn't know what to tell her. As an uneducated scrub woman, he had no idea of what kind of mission organization and mission agency would accept this woman to send her to the nations so that she could tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. A week later, Sophie came back walking up to her pastor, A.B. Simpson, and A.B. Simpson in that moment didn't have any idea what he was going to tell her. He didn't have an answer from the Lord. He didn't have specific clarity about what she was supposed to do and who she was supposed to witness to. But God had already answered that for that dear woman, Sophie. Sophie, during her prayer time, the Lord made it clear to her that God had brought the nations to her neighborhood. And God was sending, listen to this, God had directed her attention to the Chinese laundryman on the corner, to the Italian tailor across the way, to the Greek vegetable vendor who pushed his cart up her street. They had all come to New York, the Lord told her, so that she could be a missionary to them. So Sophie reached out to the many ethnic groups and nationalities who lived in her great city. Get this, at her funeral... People kept jumping up to their feet to testify that Sophie led them to Christ. By Sophie's converts and a innumerable multitude of others, Christ is believed on in the world. Christian, you may not be able to get on a plane and go to the other side of the world with the gospel. But God has put people in your relational circles that need the gospel right where you are. Will you be on mission with the gospel? Last invitation is to you as a non-Christian. If you're watching at home, if you're watching online, if you're here in the room and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let me tell you this. You cannot be good enough to get into heaven. You need godliness. You need holiness. And Jesus Christ came to take your place. He came to act as your substitute. He came to die on a cross so that you could be forgiven and saved. And if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus... I would invite you today to make sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just a couple of weeks ago, somebody who had been visiting our church for a couple of weeks checked that tear tab that I've asked you to check every single week as a visitor, as a guest, or someone interested in the gospel. 
He took that tear tab and he said, I'm interested in becoming a follower. I love those tear tabs. I really do. Because it means I get a chance to talk about the gospel with somebody specifically. So I messaged him. And we set up a time for him to come to my office and talk. Teenage kid, not out of high school yet. He came to my office and he sat down and he said, I want to become, learn more about becoming a follower. I said, a follower of who? He said, a follower of Jesus. We sat down and I walked him through what the scripture says about our sinfulness and Jesus' salvation and what it means to turn your life over to Christ as a follower of Jesus. And right there in my office just a couple of weeks ago, he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we're going to baptize him next Sunday. Listen, God is at work in the hearts and lives of lost people. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus, if you're here today and you're trying to be good enough, if you're here today and you're not sure that you have a relationship with Christ, I would beg you, don't let today go by without knowing what it means to follow Jesus and believing on the only one who can bring you salvation. Would you stand with me? Father, we come to you in this time and we ask that you work in our hearts and lives Send us as Christians to our neighbors and to the nations. Lord, help us to be present with one another and engaged and caring about one another as your people. Lord God, for that one or those many in this room or those at home that have not yet put their faith and trust in you, I pray that today would be the day they confess their sins, they repent of their unrighteousness, they put their faith in you and you alone. And Heavenly Father, that today would be the day of their salvation. Pray for their souls. Pray for their salvation. And I pray for us as your people that we would exalt your glory and your grace as trophies of your grace and your redemptive work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.